we read the word of the Lord this morning as we find it in the book of Ruth. We're going to read Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, the whole chapter. But before we do that, I would also call your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 7. That's on page 282. Page 282. Ruth 3 is on page 414. The reason I read from Deuteronomy 5, verses 5 through 7, is because it tells something that we need to know to really appreciate what's going on in the story told us in Ruth, both in chapters 3 and 4. So first of all, Deuteronomy 5, beginning at verse 5. I'm sorry, did I say Deuteronomy 5? Oh, I misspoke, 25, 25. And we're going to begin reading at verse 5. That's page 310, 310. There we read the following words. Hear this word of the Lord. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. We'll stop the reading there. And then we turn to Ruth 3 on page 414. Hear now again the word of the Lord. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you, where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered her feet, his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. 
So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of his word this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if the book of Ruth were ever to be termed a kind of biblical version of a Christian romance story, perhaps chapter 3 would be the point of reference. This is a very interesting and a rather dramatic chapter, as we'll see together this morning. But really to understand what's going on, because it doesn't meet the standards ultimately of a romance novel. I mean, nothing happens ultimately, in a sense, even though there's this sense of it could have gone otherwise under the circumstances. And the man in question, Boaz, doesn't even propose marriage. He says, I'm willing to do it, but if there's someone who's a near redeemer kinsman, that's an odd term for a husband, A redeemer kinsman, uh, let him do it. That would be good. After all, she's a lot younger than I am. I'm getting old in years, and it would be a September-May sort of wedding. That isn't really particularly exciting if you were to take it by the measure of what constitutes the sort of thing that is denominated romance in our day. Well, to understand what's going on here in chapter 3, we have to rehearse a little bit We have to go backwards. Some of you have heard sermons already from the book of Ruth by yours truly. Others of you haven't, and most of you have probably forgotten. So I'll just tell you quickly, as quickly as I can, what's transpired to this point. The story begins badly. There's famine in the house of bread, Bethlehem. And of all places in the tribe of Judah, a man by the name of Elimelech with his wife, Naomi, Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi means the line has fallen for me in pleasant places. Of all things, this family were told, because there's famine in the land, went a far distance to the most unlikely destination for a son or daughter of the living God, a child of the covenant, Israel. Because the Moabites were from their very beginning a people unalterably opposed to the Lord and to his church. They were worshipers of many gods, but not the true and living God. They hated Israel. They didn't show the Israelites hospitality when they came out of captivity and approached the promised land. Their king, Balak, hired a prophet, a prophet for hire by the name of Balaam, and he said, you prophesy judgment and curse upon these people. And I told you a number of weeks, even perhaps months ago, that there was a stipulation in the book of Deuteronomy that no Moabite, if he or she should marry an Israelite, 
were their children for ten, count them, generations, to be admitted into the assembly of Israel. That's where the story begins. But then we're told they hear that there is God has been gracious. He's restored bread to the land. And while in Moab, Elimelech died, and Malan, Kilion, Ruth, uh, Naomi, and Elimelech's two sons had died, they had married, of all things, and of course, two Moabite women, Orpah, not Oprah as I reminded you, Orpah, and Ruth. And they go back with Naomi to their own country, the land of promise, the people of Israel. And along the way, Naomi says to these two young widowed Moabite daughters-in-law, I'll put words in her mouth, you have no future, nor do I, among my people. Remember what I just said about the Moabites. The likelihood of your finding a husband, try going out with a young Israelite and bring yourself to his house and say, here I am, a trophy wife for any boy in Israel. It's not going to happen. And I'm too old, even if I were to marry tonight, to have sons whom you could marry. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. I'm a widow in Israel. I have no prospects for a husband. I have no likely grandson to be born of one of these Moabite daughters of mine who could protect my name, my inheritance and portion, and the family of my husband among God's people. And the chapter ends, you know, with Ruth being told by Naomi as she speaks to the women in Bethlehem upon their return, I have no future. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Bitterness. The lines are no longer falling for me in pleasant places. I have no future. I have no prospects of blessing. I will be wiped out, and the, the name of my husband, Elimelech, and his family, it's a cul-de-sac. I went away full with husband and two sons. I've come back empty-handed. By the way, to run ahead to the chapter, and you say, please get there quickly, Dr. Venom, chapter 3. It's not an accident in the telling of the story that at the end of this chapter, uh, Boaz says to Ruth, open your shawl, and he puts six bushels of barley in it. So once again, she can come back to waiting, worrying mother-in-law, Naomi, and show her she's not empty-handed. God never leaves his people empty-handed. He never takes from their fullness and strips them of all that they have. He gives them grace upon grace. Their cup overflows. Their blessings are too many to number. And so in the first chapter, I missed the main central part of it. I have to quickly hasten to add that. Quite a different story with respect to Ruth who refuses to return to her own people. She rather remarkably contrasts with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who should have known better. She says, your people, Naomi, they'll be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you dwell, I will dwell. Until death do us part, I will cling to you, your God, and your people. 
And then in chapter 2, the story begins to demonstrate who spoke the truer word. Not Naomi, saying the Lord's hand has gone out against me. I have no future. There are no prospects for me. The cul-de-sac in which I find myself is a dead end. Ruth had spoken the truer word. Anyone who throws in and commits himself or herself to the Lord and to his people, they will find that he will not leave them empty-handed. Now we'll skip over chapter 2 other than to say Already in chapter 2, Ruth says, and goes out into the field and comes to a field by a man, of a man by the name of Boaz, and as a widow, she reaps the remainder on the outskirts of the field, the sheaves of grain that have fallen upon the ground, and it goes very well for her. And we're already told something that becomes particularly significant now in chapter 3 that she so happened to find herself in the field of Boaz, but it was no accident. God was weaving together by the rich, gracious tapestry of his good, saving purpose that he would introduce this Moabite daughter-in-law of Naomi to a man who was a kinsman, a relative of Naomi's, who would, as we'll see in this chapter, at least in part, be to her and to Naomi and to the family of Elimelech a true brother, a true kinsman, even a redeemer, who would rescue these two widows from their apparently desperate circumstance and bring them into a place of extraordinary blessing among God's people. But now having said all of that, let's get to chapter 3. We're told there are three things I would have you notice. There are three moments in the story. The first one is Naomi's, and it's just like you would expect, a meddling mother-in-law wants to find a husband for this unlikely candidate, Ruth. She has a risky venture that she proposes. And if you read the story at all with care, you know that you could cut the tension with a knife. Just because you know the end from the beginning, you know the rest of the story, it could have played out very differently than it played out. It was a risky venture indeed that Naomi proposes. And then we see Boaz remarkably, as a true Israelite and a proper representative of God's kindness and love for his people and care for their protection and their good, Boaz recognizes the greater kindness that Ruth has demonstrated in her willingness to undertake this risky venture. That's exactly the language Boaz uses. You 
have shown an even greater kindness, Ruth, by your willingness to do as Naomi proposes. And then lastly, we see a window into what will become altogether apparent in chapter 4. And that story will be told, Lord willing, tonight as we come together for worship, if you're able to join us, in chapter 4. But we can't unfold everything this morning. We'll just give you a kind of promise of what's to come as the story is resolved in chapter 4. But now let's look at those three things for a moment. What does Naomi propose? One day it says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, says to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home? Actually, if you look in the notation at the bottom of the page, it, the language he uses is rest. What did the Lord promise his people Israel they would find in him in his covenant, in the land he promises to give them. Rest, shalom, blessedness, life that is abundant and full. That's an important word. Should I not try to find rest, a home for you, where you will be well provided for? That's a fitting thing for a mother-in-law to do. Look out for the well-being and the future of her daughter-in-law, widowed wife of her deceased son. Is not Boaz, the fellow in whose field you gleaned, with whose servant girls you have been, is he not a kinsman, a relative, a near relative of ours? There's a little hint there of something that's coming that's not unimportant. We've already been told that in chapter 2. Tonight, Ruth, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So, this is what I propose. You wash yourself, get some rather expensive perfume, so you'll exude a sweet-smelling aroma, and you dress yourself in your finest evening gown, you might say in our language, Put on your best clothes, the sort you wear to the prom, and then you go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he is finished eating and drinking. Even a little suggestion that he might be a little bit tipsy, having had a bit of wine, and weary after a day's work, and under the cover of darkness, no one will bear it witness. Stealth plan of action here. Then go down to the threshing floor. Don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down to sleep, note the place where he lies. Then go and uncover the feet, his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. This was a risky venture indeed. We're already told in chapter 2, and Boaz repeats it in a manner of speaking in the words he speaks in the middle of the night when he awakens to this young Moabite widow, Ruth, at his feet, smelling sweet with perfume and dressed in rich apparel, suitable to a wedding proposal. He will tell you what to do. 
just want to insert something here. It's amazing to me. Unless Naomi's intentions were malicious, wanted to seduce through Ruth, this elderly man, single man, Boaz. What she was proposing was a proposal. He will tell you what to do. She has at least the hope that this child of the covenant, this noble man of good character, Boaz, who is an upstanding living member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will do right by her. He will not take advantage of her, as he might very well have done. That's the risky venture. She's aiming to set things up in such a way, she's maneuvering, you might say. Remember, this is a mother-in-law looking out for her Moabite daughter-in-law and for herself as well. Uh, that there might somehow, out of all of these circumstances, arise a proposal of marriage. And he can play the role of a kinsman redeemer. And it's amazing. Ruth goes along with it. We had been told, remember, in chapter 2, just to repeat that, that Boaz had encouraged his workers to keep an eye out for this Moabite widow in the field, lest she be molested and ill-treated as a foreigner, an alien to the covenant, a Moabite of all people. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do, just the way she had been told. When Boaz finished eating and drinking, was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Did you notice that good spirits? Uh, Ruth approached quietly, under the cover of darkness, uncovered his feet, lay down, and in the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned. He had to at least delight a little bit in the story. I mean, put yourself in Boaz's place. You know, it's not accidental that the Hebrew word used here, behold, behold, there at his feet is an answer to why he smells this sweet aroma, is a lovely Moabite, the woman who had gleaned in his fields previously under the blankets. And then it doesn't play out the way you might expect if this were what we call a kind of Christian version of a romance novel. Who are you, he says. That's a bit of an understatement. Who are you? I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. There's a bit of a hint there of just as the Lord under whose wings I have taken shelter, I would take shelter under your wings, Boaz, if you would have me. You are my kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness the reader is called upon at this point to recognize that not only had Naomi taken a risk, but Ruth, for the sake of her mother-in-law and the family of her father-in-law, Elimelech, 
and their future among God's people in Israel, she had taken an even greater risk in complying with her mother-in-law, and Boaz recognizes it. This is a selfless act of kindness that you have demonstrated, Ruth, out of love and devotion to that mother-in-law with whose people you have committed yourself. You have not run after the younger men. Suggests that, as I said earlier, Boaz was probably a September groom, well along in years. (laughs) That's not a great romance theme. But in any case, that's the story as it's told us here in the book of Ruth. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. I accept your and through you Naomi's proposal that I do for you as a kinsman redeemer what is desperately needed. And I'll see to it by the morning. Stay here for the night. He's a practical man. He doesn't want anyone to see this because they're going to draw the wrong conclusion as to what happened. But, and I'll stay here for the night and in the morning if another kinsman, relative, who is a closer relative. We're not told what the nature of Boaz's relationship to Elimelech and Naomi's family was. Whether he's a distant cousin, once removed, second removed, or where he stands in the pecking order, but he's not the closest relative. That much is for sure. And so he says, I have to see in the morning, and I'll see to it, if this near redeemer, kinsman redeemer, will do for you what needs to be done. Lie here until the morning. And then when she gets up, she gets up early before anyone can recognize her so she can slip out without being seen. Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor, says Boaz. And he also says, bring me a shawl and fill it, fills it with barley. And then the story ends with Naomi, she's probably been up all night, waiting anxiously for a report as to how the proposal, the risky venture, had turned out, hoping against hope that it hadn't gone badly. And she gets this great confirmation that it had gone perfectly delightedly. It had played out just as they had hoped and prayed that it would. He gave me, says Ruth, these six measures of barley. He said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. You see the indirect rebuke there to Naomi's complaint at the end of chapter 1? I went away full, now I come back empty. Oh no. The Lord has in store for you, Naomi, through this delightful, loving, loyal, devoted, most kind daughter-in-law of yours, a Moabite of all people, he will secure for you. She will secure for you through Boaz. A name, a place, a future, a portion among God's people. Now, I have to end here rather quickly. and We'll pick it up and finish it off this evening. But let me just say this. I read Deuteronomy 25. What does Deuteronomy 25 stipulate? God wants among his people that they so care for each other and seek one another's well-being, particularly in the families of Israel, that when 
a woman is widowed. Her husband dies, and they haven't a son, and so no heir. That that woman should be married by the nearest of kin. It's called leveret marriage from the Latin word for lever, brother-in-law. Her former husband, her deceased husband's brother, the next in line, is to assume the responsibility to marry her, to take her, and with her have a son. Why? In that way, preserve his brother's name and their family inheritance portion among God's people, that their name not be blotted out of the church registry. Now you say, that's all very interesting, Dr. Venema. But don't forget this, brothers and sisters, this is Old Testament language. In the New Testament context of the greater kinsman redeemer whose name is Jesus, what is our inheritance in him, if not a place among God's people, an inheritance kept for us, imperishable and unspoiled? A future that is brighter with promise than you could ever imagine. A new and better country. What we're being told here is that the Lord is through his own covenant people and the provisions for the way in which they deal with each other would so act in relationship to their brothers and sisters as to mirror and reflect God's greater kindness and perfect love for those who he owns as his kinsmen, brothers and sisters, as members of his household, the church. Let me put it this way. You may say, well, this is all very interesting, Dr. Venom, the story is rather fascinating, and it turns out well, and we always like a story that ends well. But you understand that it works this way even today in the church. When someone comes among us, a stranger to the covenant, and unaware of the great Redeemer whose name is Jesus, how do they experience God's welcome? How do they get a taste of what it means to belong to his family? Well, when they're like Boaz, they show hospitality. They welcome even a stranger, a Moabite, who becomes, as we'll see this evening, a great-great-grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the flesh. They seek the well-being of their brothers and their sisters. You know, you could glean from this chapter a few lessons, the first of which would be this. There is no greater blessing than to be among the people of God, the household of faith, a recipient of God's kindness with the promise that your name is written down in glory 
never to be erased. That you are a prized member, you together with your children and your children's children will have a portion among those who receive an inheritance through Christ greater than any inheritance that the children of Israel under the old, merely as a type and shadow of the reality that was to come. That even has something to do with marriage and family. We don't only marry, bear children if God gives us children, see them grow up, and they have children in turn in the line of the generations. What we want for our marriage is that it will be a mirror of God's relationship to his people, a relationship of mutual love, care, kindness, and consideration. Even if you're a little bit older than she is, or she's not as pretty as perhaps Ruth was. And more than anything else as parents, this was the thing that motivated Naomi. I want to see my children and my children's children in the house of the Lord. I want to see them grow up to perpetuate the grace and kindness that the Lord has shown me, that they may know it too, and the generations after them also. I don't want for them an earthly inheritance, first of all. I don't want to pass on to them a large estate in the things that this world has to offer. I want them to have a portion among God's people. And I want them to experience in the church the way in which God shows loving kindness from generation to generation and redeems Naomi and Elimelech's family and the generations after them all the way up and past the coming of their great-great-grandson, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a story of redemption. It's a story of God bringing his people from emptiness to fullness. This is a story of God's faithfulness from one generation to the next. But we'll have to finish it more fully and appropriately this evening. So I'll stop there. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in all these circumstances, your hand was at work drawing and bringing Naomi and Ruth out of their emptiness into fullness, providing for them in Boaz a redeemer, a kinsman who was ready to do even at cost to himself, what was necessary to redeem them and restore them to their name, place, and inheritance among your people. May we show a like interest in preserving our families and future generations in the line of the covenant as recipients of your steadfast love and blessing in the greater kinsman redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.